Hey everybody, my name is Brent Walton. I am an alcoholic. Brent. I'd like to thank the group for having me tonight. I'd like to thank Monica for inviting me to come and talk with you tonight. And uh, congratulations to everybody who took a chip. Congratulations to the birthday people and special congratulations to Karn, who's been my friend for a number of years. And it's really just a pleasure to see you again. I said I'm an alcoholic, right? Me too. Me too. <laughs> I didn't want to be one. Like there was no, nowhere in the history of my life did I think, oh my God, I want to be an alcoholic. I want to be a drug addict. I want this. That was never, ever, ever in the course of the, my desires, wants, and yet I became one. It ought to tell me that my wants are not necessarily going to equal a happy and fulfilled life. My wants, my wants, right? Boy, and thank you, Stu. What did I want to do? I wanted to be comfortable around you. I wanted to be comfortable in my own skin. I don't know how many of you can actually remember back to your first resentment. If you can remember back to your first resentment when life dealt you wrong, like really, really wrong, life dealt you. And you're like, oh, I gotta do something. And it just gnaws at you, right? And you, and it keeps happening and it plays over in your mind and you think about it again and again and again. I don't know that what has happened there is the disease of separation is set in. I don't know that that's the first moment that I've created an idea concept in my mind that has taken me away from you. And I've created this idea that I'm separate and apart from you, from God, from the universe, from everything. But that's the dynamic that has occurred right then and there. And it's cemented itself. And it's going to repeat. And it's going to repeat over and over and over again until I can find something that what? makes me seemingly whole, okay, comfortable, until I can breathe again. That's something for me, just like a lot of you, was alcohol. alcohol. The first time I took alcohol, I too am a late bloomer, right? I'm a late bloomer to this thing, and like Stuart shared, it saved my life. I don't know about the rest of you. I don't know what was happening to you, but here's what was going down in my house. I was born into a wonderful family, good Mormon family. Right. And at the age of six, my dad died. Nothing really remarkable. He's not an alcoholic. He's, as far as I know, he's never even tasted alcohol, never taken a drug, nothing. He was just born with a kidney disease, hereditary nephritis. And in 1970, he had a kidney transplant and he was the longest living kidney transplant recipient in the United States. And he passed away in 1975. <clears throat> It happens to lots of people. What it did to me was I had a resentment. And my first resentment is, of course, against God. And that separated me from you, you from me, and me from all the world. And I didn't even appreciate it. Because from that point forward, I would tell myself I'm different. I would feel different. I'd have an experience that would be different. And it turns out I was different. And everybody kept on telling me, I'm different. I'm different. I'm different. And we hear this in the rooms. And at the age of 16, right? 
here's the differences that got, all went away for a kid like me. Right? After my dad passed away, the next father figure that my mother brought into our life, he liked to beat on little boys. He liked to play prisoner of war games. He's a PTSD war vet from Vietnam. And that was not cool. Our babysitter was a good Mormon woman down the street, and she liked to rape little boys. At the age of 17, my next stepfather, the next man, he was an alcoholic of the Thorazine shuffle variety. You know, the four-day blackout and shuffling around in his underwear, and you can have conversations with him. <laughs> and he doesn't remember anything, and it was the finest moments of your life. He does what he, he did. He was just smoking a cigarette. It's what we do, blacked out. Cigarette smolders, burns the house down, he dies. I am done with life. I hate God. I hate the religion. I hate the police. They didn't do anything. Nothing's safe. And I'm not going to hang around here. And the only one I could count on was me or my brother. At the same time, I got to hate my mother. And the resentments had solidified and we're going to run my life. And I wouldn't know. And at the age of 16, oh, mind you, Oh, while this is happening, I'm getting treated for trauma and therapy, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mental case, right? <laughs> I'm a product of mental institutions, for real. My whole third grade year was spent being tested, being treated for trauma, having all of these special, special things, and none of it worked. Right? At the age of 16, here's what happened, right? I'm a smart kid. And uh, I'm not, if you don't know Mormonism, we don't drink no matter what. It's one of those. <laughs> My friend Killian laughed, right? We don't drink no matter what, right? <laughs> <laughs> Kelly and I grew up in Salt Lake City and boy, do we drink. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to a concert. This night, my friend Ray Wells, I'm roughly 16. I can't remember. We both had birthdays in April. He was driving that night. So he had his license. I had my, my license, right? But he's driving that night. He says, Brent, you want to go to a concert? And I say, sure, let's go. I don't know why I say yes. I don't go to concerts at this age in my life. I'm just a nerdy little kid who got picked on, bullied, and, you know, I'm, I'm odd. I'm weird. I'm different. And uh, we roll up to the, the, um, the concert hall in Salt Lake City, and he reaches back in the back of his Jeep, pulls the paper bag out, and inside are four California coolers. Four, two quarts for him, two quarts for me. And he says, do you want one? And I'm like, yeah, let's do this. I don't know why none of the warnings and prejudices of my people said, oh, it's alcohol. You can have it. Like, this wasn't happening. And it wasn't peer pressure. He was like, do you want it? And I said, yeah, let's do this. And so we unscrew it. And we drink it down. And I can tell you, it's not like this that the effect happened. There is a biological component to actually having the alcohol in your bloodstream. Right? I think I had to pee first before, <laughs> before I felt it, right? But when it hit, ooh, yeah, like that. All the voices in my head, all the differences, all the opinions, the whole deal just went quiet. And if you're a mental case, a mental patient who has whose best friend is your psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> That's a spiritual 
experience. Instantly, my life changed. A whole new perspective was found. And I'm going to, it turns out it's a punk rock concert and I'm not a punker. Like I have, I have penny loafers on with pennies in them. I got some khaki pants on. I have a white shirt buttoned up to the top. Cute little bow tie and a sweater vest. And I had the time of my life. That was the best night ever for a guy like me. You can't have that night. You cannot take that night from me. It saved my life. I went that Sunday to the bishop and I said, you know, this word of wisdom thing needs to change. <laughs> we really need to drink more. <laughs> And the bishop informed me, Brent, I don't think that's going to happen. And what do we do? Anything that gets away gets in the way of me. And that experience, that spiritual experience is going to be run over or moved to the side. And that's what happened. Boy, within a year, I was a punker. Hey, yeah, yeah right? Yeah. Like, no joke. New people, new places, new playthings. This is what was happening. This was going to go down no matter what, because in that moment, I could breathe and I could finally engage life, or so it seemed to me, right? This is what we suffer from, a seemingly state of, seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And in that moment, with that change of point of view, mine, whole life altered, right? I can't change any of you, and I can't change the 8 billion people on this planet but you give me a head change and all 8 billion change like that. Yeah. And that's powerful for any of us who are consumed with resentments and fears. That's a powerful experience. The most understated line in the big book is like right there in the doctor's opinion, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Man, I like a lot of things. I can take them or leave them. I freaking love the effect produced by alcohol. It became my God. And thank you for pointing that out. It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what I think. But what is guiding my life? What am I actually turning to? And that will tell you exactly what your higher power is. If it's your relationship, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, that's it. If it's money, we read about the guy with money in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Right before you have... Um, you know, Bill, Jay Walker, and Fred. There's the guy who worshiped money and his higher power was absolutely money. And he saw that drinking got in the way of that. And as long as he needed and was worshiping money, he didn't drink. What happened as soon as he retired? As soon as his God was dead. Out came the carpet slippers and the bottle and he's dead. Four years later. And that's our story over and over again. And I just can't see it. I can't see it at all. So all I did for the next few years was pursue that same, the effect produced, the effect produced. And it's a spiritual experience for a guy like me. And if you're, you have the, the biological component, you know, the allergy of the body is what it's called, right? The phenomenon of craving, if, you, if one's not enough and two is better and then two leads to three, et cetera, right? I'm going to go chase that. 
And I'm really, really determined. And if you're like me as well, that you're going to go prove yourself important, just as Bill says, because we have that inferiority superiority complex. Who has to prove they're important? It's not a trick question. It's a dynamic and it's true for all of you as well. The only people that have to prove themselves important are the ones that deep down believe they're not. Where you don't already know that you are intrinsically valued and loved. Because if you're intrinsically valued and loved, you don't have to prove anything. But we set out to prove something. We set out to convince people of this, prove something going on, and I did that too. So I overachieved, right? That's how I proved it. I had I had smarts. That's I used to take credit for it. Oh my God. I used to take credit for being really smart. And it's just give it. I was born this way. Thank my parents, right? It's like, but I had a career and I, well, first I went to college, notwithstanding all the drug and alcohol. And in college, all we did was make drugs and alcohol. Like, no joke. We I constructed a still at the, at the house. We used the chem labs for making everything we wanted. And none of it was for distribution because, well, you had me around. <laughs> I am not giving it. I'll give it to you as long as you're doing it with me. But we're not selling any of it. Our spice rack had little vials of this. <laughs> we were cooking with it. You know, it was like distilling true. I mean, it was the whole chem lab was not only at the college, it was in the it was in the kitchen. <laughs> we, we even did. We were our own guinea pigs, too. We created some drugs as well at my college, like <laughs> take, taking away chloride double bonds and putting bromide in there. We created, created bromo dragon at, this, at my college. And it was like, I spent four years, not a day sober. And of course, the landlord was the local tavern owner. So yeah, he, he rolled in kegs as we paid rent. Not a day sober. And somehow I graduated and I didn't see what was happening. I went there to be a chemist. I went to college to be a chemist. I wanted to study science and math. And eventually you would start to realize that science and math labs are in the morning. <laughs> I'm not going to be making it <laughs> consistently to the morning lab. That is not going to be happening. So I went to psychology, the softer science, and then that too was still too early. And eventually I graduated with a degree in philosophy and I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote these papers, I did these things, I showed up and we even have a thesis we have to defend at this liberal arts school in Portland. You have, to get a bachelor's, you have to defend a thesis to edit within a world. And I did it high and I don't remember any. And I just continued to pursue this way of life. Eventually though, not with, notwithstanding what I'm thinking is happening, that I'm really living life and I'm engaged with life because I because it's still giving me a life worth living. Right? I uh, went and traveled the world. I couldn't hold a job. So I just had a lot of jobs and I kept on following the parties around the world. I took three years to work my way around the world. And all I did was go from one country to the next, chasing the rave this scene over in this country let's go hang out on the beach in greece let's do and for three years i i eventually came back because my younger brother 
he needed me one year because uh, I didn't realize this until I got sober. He had the same experiences. I know it's shocking. We're in the same house. He has the same experiences. It never dawned on me. And I know today that, that those experiences had nothing to do with my alcoholism. Nothing. My brother is not an alcoholic. Those all experiences and traumas of childhood had zero to do with my alcoholism. That was a bummer. <laughs> I really wanted to blame it. Like I really wanted to blame it on mom. I wanted to blame it on these, these childhood experiences and circumstances and events. I didn't want it to be me. <laughs> There's no getting around it eventually. Right? So I kept on chasing all of this. And eventually things get harder. I had a great career until I didn't, right? To just give you a couple of examples. I'm, I have council presidents, have received national awards and all of it fueled by cocaine and alcohol. Right? No joke. I even appeared at council table at the United States Supreme Court. I'm a lawyer by training, right? And I took some airplane bottles down them before walking up the steps. This is a pinnacle of my career. And then I had to do some bumps and lines in the Supreme Court bathroom, council bathroom, to just go and sit down at the table. And I didn't have to say a damn thing. I'm carrying somebody's briefcase. I'm not the guy talking that day. All I had to do was show up. And I couldn't do it, not without some assistance. If you're full of these resentments and you're full of fear and just trying to <clears throat> manage life and get through life, you're going to, here's what the book tells us we bring, broken, traumatic, and dramatic relationships, because you're not offering anything. Your relationship gets so far as your idea. Your relationship gets as far, as far as your head can see you. So lots of us, not surprisingly, we have practice fellows. Me too, right? I had my first wife, she didn't know she was marrying an alcoholic. I didn't know I was an alcoholic. But after seven years, you got to go. It's not going to work out. So what do I do? We get a divorce. It was all amicable. It was nice. It was fine. And none of that's true, but it, it works out, right? <laughs> Not a bit of that's true. It's like, oh. But I marry the second, the second one because at the end of the day, all I really wanted to do was I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to be a father and my first wife wasn't interested in having children. The second one, though, she drank and used like pot. And we were going to have kids. And here's what I can tell you. At this point, it's not looking so good. At this point, see, you know, police are sometimes getting called, right? It's not a big deal. Police, it just happens. 
right? Fun. But the but I delivered my first boy. We did natural childbirth. And I can tell you that from the age of 16 till Denon's birth, I hadn't really experienced God like I did the first time. And upon delivering my child that night, I saw the face and the breath of God again, where I could breathe. I wasn't high. I wasn't drunk. I could really breathe and be present. That was incredible. Fast forward three years. This is what the progression looks like. Second child coming along. Because if one is good, two is better. And we're just going to bring these innocent little victims into our lives. We're doing the same thing with Tesher's birth. And all I can tell you is that, even hate saying this, that was absolutely one of the worst nights of my life. Because I am stone cold sober. And all I can think about is the booze, the vodka. And I need something. And to be short of supply and the inability to get there is living hell for an alcoholic like me. And I'm supposed to be delivering my kid. Tesher, we think we were making up all the names. Tesher's name is Hebrew gift. Three weeks after Tesher's birth, not only does the wife file for divorce, but I'm in treatment. (laughs) 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 I need to get sober and I can't. So I go off to treatment and it's a a 30-day program. I pay for it, right? And we come on out. And here's what happens to me each and every time I get sober. 60 days after, after getting sober, each and every time, I end up back in the mental institution. That is exactly what happens to me. And at this time after treatment, at five months, I 51 50 myself, and they turned it into a 52 50. And then what do they do? They let, 30 days later, they just let us out. Go free, right? Like they just let us out. I've been under a 52 50 meaning I am a danger to you, you, and you, and me. And I have children at the house. And they just let us out. So the choice was either, you know, kill myself or drink. And there's that line, you you either accept, go on to the bitter end, blotting out your, you know, your intolerance this situation the best you can, or accept spiritual help or die an alcoholic death, or sex spiritual help, right? And my head is like, well, how bad is an alcoholic death? Like, how bad is it going to be? Because I'm going to go that way, not this way. And all I can tell you is three more years, it was drinking what I'll just call desperation. Every day looked the same. Every day roughly looked the same. It's Groundhog Day. I know you hear that. But here's what it looked like. I'd wobble to the freezer, put pull a slug on the vodka bottle that's sitting in the freezer, put it down, you know, just to still the shakes. What? Go into the shower. I need to feel something. I'm going to feel something. And it's the last time I'm going to feel anything that day. And three and a half years of desperation, this is what it looked like. Three and a half years of doing the same thing over and over again. 
three and a half years of wanting to die, praying to die and unable to do anything about it because everything stopped. We had lost our home. We lost everything. I was unemployable, all of it gone. And I'm living with the in-laws. And then one day when things can't get any worse or so it seemed, did something I hadn't done. Thought about my dad. It was in, it was in February. My father passed away on February 11th, 1975. And I went outside. At this point, we're living in misery, Missouri. But, you know, it's... And the snow is just coming down as it's cold. And I went out and I knelt in the snow on the patio and I said, fuck it, I give, help me. I didn't see that that was a prayer. I didn't appreciate that that was a prayer. But it was the first honest prayer I had said in a long time. And then something happened. Right? I call mommy. Because that's what we do, men. Right? And I said, mom, I need help. I want to come live with you. So I abandoned my kids. I abandoned my wife. I abandoned everything that was happening. And I moved out to Dana Point from Missouri. Because my mom said, yes, it's a sober house. I don't know why she did it. I have no idea. Because if you were as alcoholic and as horrible to your family as I was, there is no way you would rightly say yes to that. And she did. I don't know what was happening. I don't, bless you guys that were like, yeah, I'm a newcomer. Those first 30 days, I don't remember. I don't remember if I identified as a newcomer. Like re-entry is hard for a guy like me. Re-entry is impossible to come back into life. But at day, whatever, day 33, I went, here's what it was like. Like I hated AA. I hated AA. I hated those people that were smiling and happy. I hated those people that are like me now, for those of you who know me. Like I really hate like one of these guys at my home group, I too am a member of the black friend only group. We meet 8 a.m. for the men, Saturday morning come. There's this guy, Loud Steve, and I got sober in the Hardcore Harbor meeting. 7 a.m., Dana Point, right? And I hated him because he's loud, happy, and laughing. I told him that to his face, and he just went, At day, right around day 33, I found myself at the YMCA meeting, this meeting, when it was back at the Y. And my head is, I'm this crazy. My head is telling me I deserve a three-year chip. <laughs> so I came up to the podium here, just like you all did with birthdays, and took a three-year chip. <laughs> I, to this day, I have no idea what I said, why I said it, what was going on. But I'll tell you what, there are some men Let's remember and remind me. Yeah, that was a great three years. <laughs> but in the meanwhile, like I'm re-entering. I'm, it's no longer as fuzzy as it seems. And I'm starting to do some of the things that happened. And the biggest thing that happened for me is I laughed. I wasn't laughing. I was crying. Your hugs are creepy. I'm saying stay away. Like... No, I'm crying in all these meetings. My children aren't with me. The marriage is through. Nothing's right. 
And I started to laugh. I asked a guy to be my sponsor. I have no idea again why I did that. I'm just guessing I'm out of plans. Because I can almost promise you if I had another idea, another thought, another way of thinking that maybe if I do this, my life will improve. If I do this, maybe I will be able to engage life. If I do this, I would have. And all I can tell you is I think of as out of plans. So I asked a man to sponsor me and you know what he did? He did, he said yes. And what it looked like is we sat down and we read the book together. I wasn't being able to read very well, so he mainly read it to me. And something began to change. Something began to happen. The other thing that really happened was that I liked it. After I got all over the happy ones, <laughs> after I got over my resentment with the happy ones, there were a couple of guys, some of them I'm still friends with, right? And we just started trudging the road together. So if you don't have trudging budgies, just try it. If you're early, try it. Help me. And then I'm getting commitments. The commitments look like setting up these chairs, going to speaker meetings. My sponsor said, here's what he told me to do. And I did it. I don't know why, because again, I don't listen to directions very well. He said, you got to have a, a literature meeting, a speaker meeting, and then an open meeting. And you need to go to four meetings a week, three to maintain, four to recover. And so I had that and I was going to three, four meetings a day because I didn't have anything better happening. <laughs> And people were driving me to these meetings. And at least I could walk down to the Dana Point Harbor because that's where my mom lived. And I'm going there and then I'm at the speaker meeting at the Aragon, San Clemente. I'm Friday night speaker meeting in Aragon, San Clemente. And I'm listening to a guy and I'm finally hearing the message, the beautiful message of Alcoholics Anonymous. This thing is about mercy and love and kindness. And I'm hearing it and it's sinking in. And he shared some things and I learned for resentments. I went up to him afterwards and on the way, it turns out that he was the lead singer of the punk band of the first night I got drunk. And I bookended these spiritual experiences and they started to lead to the thing called the spiritual awakening. And I went to, to my sponsor and I said, fine. I'll do this. I know this won't work for me. And in that moment where I'm trying to prove you wrong, I'm fully committed. Turns out I was fully committed to AA just to prove it wouldn't work for a guy like me because nothing had worked for a guy like me. Not mental health institutions, not the best psychiatrist my mother could find, not my own ideas, not self-help, not religious retreats, nothing was able to bring me back into life. Links. And I was in. And I started to do this. And then you learn these beautiful, beautiful spiritual tools. You learn these beautiful spiritual tools. And if you start to apply them, life gets better. In the forward to the 12 and 12, it says that the 12 steps are a set of spiritual principles. I mean, a set of principles, spiritual in nature, that when practice is a way of life, will render and enable the sufferer. That's me. That's you happily and usefully whole. And I had no appreciation that that's exactly what I wanted out of life. 
my ability to just be with you and engage with you where you are and where I'm at. It says when two or more are gathered, God is in the midst. I can't ever gather with you if I can't get beyond self. I know it seems like it, but if I'm selfish and self-centered in the extreme, I'm, I'm having an experience with my idea, not with you. And if I'm having an experience with my idea, it means I'm micromanaging you, judging you, telling you what to do, how to be, what not to be. And that's not an experience with a God's child. That's an experience with self. I needed to get beyond that. And to do that, I could no longer be the boy whistling in the dark. I had to actually pray and invite God in. Set aside the things I think I know and invite God in to have a new experience so that I can be with you demonstrate with you and actually engage with you in this thing called life. This is the design for living. And it works. And it works. Here's what life looks like now. Sobriety day, February 12, 2013. The last drink heard on the anniversary of my dad's death. February 12th happens to be Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Talk about freedom. The miracle of day zero to day one. Some guys make fun of me and, and you know, it's like I have these old boots I like to wear. They say those are Abraham Lincoln boots. And I'm like, yeah, they are. <laughs> I know I'm getting out of time, but I want to share with you what it's like. I lost my kids. I abandoned the family. Right. Three years ago at Christmas time. We're in, back in misery because we go to the in-laws. We go visit at Christmas time. It's not miserable anymore, and it's all okay for me, and it's all okay for them. And then we're invited, and we do it as a family together. Three years ago at Christmas time, my, my now ex-wife, we got, I got divorced in sobriety. She says, Brent, can the kids come live with you? I'm like, yeah. Oh, my God. No court involved. Can the kids come live with you? Yeah. So the children have been living with me for the, since then, you know. One's a seventh grader and the other's a junior. And they're great kids. I'm, I'll turn into the guy that brags. My kid, my, my oldest kid just scored a 1530 on his SATs. He's a 4.0 student, 4.73 weighted average. And holy cow, he's getting recruited by some great institutions. And that's not happening because I'm sober, I'll tell you what it is, is he has a stable foundation to then go and pursue his dreams. It's like, wow. And I get to be along for the ride. Big, big life. My younger one, he also, great student. He's a little sensitive. little unicorn and he's magical in the same way that i'm magical <laughs> i've got some friends that want to give me a wizard robe it's what, it's what. <laughs> but three months after they moved our youngest one tester he said can mommy come live with us she doesn't have anywhere else to go 
And just like I didn't have anywhere else to go, we said yes. Right? We say, yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen. I can tell you, oh, and I still live with my mom. But this time I'm now actually having to like give it back because she can't live alone. So I live with my mom, the two boys, and my ex-wife. <laughs> this was not my plan. <laughs> and I wouldn't change a thing. I appreciate, I love AA. Like, I love being able to live life one day at a time and engage all of you. What you get is me. What you get is me, where I'm comfortable just being me in my own skin. And I'm comfortable with you. And when two or more are gathered, God is there. God's address is now. And now, and now, and everything is transformed. Why? Because I'm not selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, and afraid. I, today, I get to live in that position of neutrality, safe and protected already. Already. There's nothing I need to do about it. Take a few simple steps. Be of service. No longer thinking I'm helping, just be of service and love you. And miracles happen. I'm sober today by the grace of God. And that's what God can do to a drunk like me. Thanks for letting me share.